This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Hello out there in American Family Radio land. My name is John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. I am a family psychologist who, I have said many times before on this show and elsewhere, does not believe in psychology. I believe in the Bible and the Bible's worldview and psychology's worldview are 180 degrees, poles apart. It is impossible to be a Christian and a psychologist simultaneously. Therefore, people who call themselves Christian psychologists really don't know what they're talking about because uh, these two worldviews, the opposition between these two worldviews, cannot by any uh, trick be reconciled. So I am not a Christian psychologist. I am a Christian who happens to hold a license to practice psychology and have since 1979 from the North Carolina Psychology Board, whom I guarantee you regrets the day they ever issued me a license because I go around the country and I tell people the truth, which is that we would not be having the problems we are having with children today, and I don't mean we would not be having any But we would not be having the kinds of problems we are having with children today, and we would not be having the quantity or magnitude of problems that we are having with children today. And I'm not just talking about behavior problems. I'm talking about the emotional problems that today's children are obviously suffering, depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Had it not been for the fact that we began to listen to psychologists and other mental health professionals tell us how to raise children beginning in the mid-1960s. In the mid-1960s, I entered college. I became a uh, major in psychology. I chose psychology as my major. I went to graduate school in psychology. I was a very good student. I happened to make straight A's through undergraduate and graduate school in my psychology courses, My professors told me that I was the best student they'd ever had. Uh, I was eventually awarded the the alumni, uh, the Distinguished Alumni Award, and uh, that was some 20, 25 years later from my alma mater, Western Illinois University, which no one's ever heard of. Uh, And uh, I reconnected with a lot of my professors who told me then I was the best student that ever had. And I don't tell you that, mind you, to pump myself up, only to put into perspective that I was a guy who bought completely into the psychological worldview. And then I found Christ, and I began to realize, no, one cannot... uh, One cannot really and truly follow Christ and believe in psychology at the same time. It's just, uh, it's an irreconcilable conflict that uh, is, uh, is, becomes a burden actually in a person's life. It was a burden in my life until I reconciled it, realizing that 
Scripture is the truth, that Jesus is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life, and that psychology is not the way, psychology is not the truth, and psychology certainly does not lead to life. Listening to psychologists tell us how to raise children has caused more problems than psychologists even know how to solve, in fact. And if you'd like to see how threatening I am to my profession, just go to your search engine and type in Kentucky Psychology Board John Rosemond. And for those of you who are first-time listeners, my last name is spelled R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D, John Rosemond. Kentucky Psychology Board, John Rosemond, and, uh, and read for yourselves how threatening I am to my profession. So my real qualifications, in addition to the fact that I'm a psychologist, I've written 20 books on child-rearing and family issues, um, including my Christian evangelical bestseller, Parenting by the Book, I write a weekly nationally syndicated newspaper column that appears in about 250 newspapers around the country. I'm a public speaker and a fairly busy one at that. I've hardly been home in the last three weeks. I'm, I'm here for a few days and then off to Los Angeles, West Palm Beach, and then uh, Fort Myers, Florida, and then back home for the rest of the month of May and June. And I'm looking forward to it, folks, I got to tell you because I've just been uh, away from hearth and home too long the last couple of uh, few weeks. But my real qualifications are that I've been married to the same woman since I was 20 and she was 19. That would be 48 years. And we have two adult children, and we have seven grandchildren, ranging in ages from 8 to 21 years old. One of our grandkids is in college. One is about to go to college. And uh, two are in high school, three are in high school, and uh, then the rest are in elementary school. I lost count of the numbers there, folks. You'll have to pardon my 68-year-old brain. So everybody wants to raise uh, competent children, and that's what the uh, first segment of the show is all about, raising competent children. And you can begin to do that early on in your child's life by, A, not using pull-ups, and toilet training your child before the age of two. And yes, folks, that can be done. The average age of child rearing in America prior to the psychological parenting revolution that took place in this country in the 1960s was 22 months. In the 1950s, the average child was fully trained, and by the way, accident-free. That is the criteria the researchers used to determine trained. Trained was accident-free, and that happened on average right around 22 months of age. And then along came pediatrician T. Barry Brazelton and a bunch of psychologists who began telling people that toilet training children under the age of two required force, which it doesn't, and uh, was psychologically disruptive to the child, which it is not. Uh, in fact, uh, old-fashioned child rearing, which was, in fact, biblically based, was good for children. And the statistics point that out and emphasize it and underscore it. Today's child by age 16, when compared with the child raised in the 1950s, is 10 times more likely, that is today's child, 10 times more likely 
to experience a serious emotional setback by that age, 16, than was his counterpart in the 1950s, who was spanked, toilet trained before age two, and uh, told what to do. And when he asked why or why not, uh, was told, because I said so. Um, Old-fashioned, biblically-based child rearing was good for kids. The new psychological child rearing that we embraced in the 1960s has not been good for children. It's not been good for parents, especially mothers, who are just a wad of anxiety and stress when it comes to kids. Hasn't been good for marriages. It has, in fact, been a wedge in the American marriage ever since the 1960s because uh, husband and wife no longer agree on how to raise children. Uh, in, in many households, it's been bad for schools, community, and culture. It's just been a bad, bad thing. And my purpose, folks, uh, if you haven't figured it out already, is to resurrect out of the ashes old-fashioned, biblically-based child rearing, uh, help people find their way out of the dark wood, that uh, the dark parenting wood that we have been lost in ever since the 1960s, that'd be 51 years, folks, that we uh, have been wandering around lost in this wood. And it is time for us to understand this new parenting is not working and no amount of work is going to get it to work. No amount of energy, no matter no amount, no amount of conscientiousness is going to get it to work. No amount of application, no amount of reading. And that's an ironic thing for me to say. Uh, is going to get it to work. Uh, we need to find our way out of this uh, parenting dark wood back to uh, the main road. And uh, we need to, uh, the road traveled by our grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and so on and so forth. And um, this, I am convinced, by the way, will be America's salvation. And I don't mean that in a theological sense. I mean just in the sense of surviving as a nation before we do anything else, we have got to get our child-rearing house back in order. So anyway, I say to parents, look, you know, the, the first thing you need to know about raising a competent child is the child needs to be toilet trained below before age two. It is an insult to a child's intelligence to continue to allow him to continue wetting and soiling himself past his second birthday. It's an insult. To the child's intelligence, you can house train a uh, four-month-old puppy. The puppy will tell you when uh, it needs to use the uh, the yard, uh, and a child will tell you when it needs to use the bathroom before age two. I guarantee you this. One of the great hindrances to childering these days is a nefarious garment called the pull-up which does nothing but delay childering. It does not facilitate it. Stop buying these things. And I know that's a, a you know, a, um, a brand name, but I'm using it generically. Yeah, it's things like pull-ups that uh, have uh, pushed the average age of toilet training from uh, right around 22 months to probably close to two and a half, three years old. It's not unusual today to find a child who's well into his fourth year of life. In other words, he's a three-year-old who is still not toilet trained. 
and in all likelihood now refusing to use the toilet. It's become a power struggle between himself and his parents, his mother especially, who by now is going absolutely nuts because she listened to the readiness signs babble that has been put out by people like Brazelton and the psychological community for the last uh, 50 years. Well, we're up against a hard break, folks. I'll be back in a moment with more of this uh, parenting incorrectness. I'm John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. Stay with us. Alrighty then, thanks for staying with us. Uh, once again, the show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, family psychologist, uh, rebel with a cause, uh, outlier in my field, controversial, uh, and uh, not welcomed by my colleagues at psychological conferences, which I don't want to attend anyway. They bore me to death. Um, the show is carried exclusively on American Family Radio, and I'd like to thank Tim Wildman and uh, everyone there at uh, Devin Patrick and everyone there at American Family Radio for making this such a pleasant experience for me for the last nine months. Okay, I'm talking about raising competent children and what you can do early on in your child's life in order to facilitate competence and a sense of confidence in uh, your child's abilities, uh, ability, generally speaking, to um, handle life's uh, challenges adequately. So before the break, I talked about uh, toilet training before the age of two. And if you want to find out more about that, folks, the only book in the marketplace that promotes Pre-second birthday toilet training is a book written by yours truly. It's called Toilet Training Without Tantrums. And basically, as is the case with uh, nearly everything I say, I am not saying anything new. I am simply describing for a modern audience a toilet training approach that uh, was used in America uh, 60 plus years ago and in fact is still being used in third world countries and um, it will work today and it works quite well. Uh, the secret to to expedient toilet training before the age of two and folks listen uh, a child can be toilet trained in three to seven days I mean successfully where the child is virtually accident free uh, without yelling, screaming, jumping up and down, cookies, reading books to the child while he sits on the toilet, or anything uh, else along those nonsensical lines. Um, if you're interested, go to your library, go to my website, uh, and find out more about my book, Toilet Training Without Tantrums. It is, for obvious reasons, the only toilet training book I recommend. All right, stage two. In uh, raising a competent child is to not use sippy cups. Don't use sippy cups. Children have hands and they have arms. And these hands and arms are designed, in part, to lift open containers of liquid to their mouths. 
And believe it or not, a child of 12 to 16 months of age can be taught to do exactly that. Let's face it, folks, the motivation is going to be significant to the child because liquid water, especially, which I'll get back to in a second, is essential to the maintenance of life. And children intuitively know this. They intuitively know they have to drink. Their bodies uh, every so often scream at them, you need something to drink. Okay, here's how to get a child to drink from an open container by the time the child is 16 months of age. You take a plastic cup that does not have a, uh, a cover on it or one of those uh, protuberances on it like a sippy cup does, and um, you put in the cup uh, about a third of a cup of water. I don't mean a third of the cup itself, but just a third of a cup, a little bit of water. You see, here's why people are using sippy cups. People are using sippy cups because most parents are not giving their children water to drink. They are instead giving their children junk drinks like orange juice. Is orange juice a junk drink? John, it's not a junk drink. It's very healthy. No, it's not. It's full of sugar. It's one of the most sugar-y drinks you can give to your child. It's not at all healthy. Uh, it spikes blood sugar. It creates a reaction that... Uh, Repeated often enough can lead to diabetes. Um, it's not a healthy drink at all. Most fruit drinks are not, in fact. I don't know, and neither does my great-grandmother know where this uh, habit of giving children fruit drinks began. Uh, in addition to fruit drinks, which are unhealthy, generally speaking, uh, parents give their children junk drinks in the form of artificially sweetened, artificially colored drinks, that are problematic in numerous respects. I won't name the brands. You know what they are. Okay, so what I say to parents is, look, the human body does not consist of, what's the figure, 80% uh, Kool-Aid. Uh, the human body does not consist of 80% orange juice or apple juice or grape juice. Uh, the human body is not uh, created, was not created to deal with a lot of sugar and a lot of artificial colorings, much less artificial sweeteners. So stop that stuff, put a little bit of water in an open container, show your child how to lift this open container of water to his mouth. Is he going to spill? Yes. But you see, it's water. So unlike the junk that today's parents are, generally speaking, putting in the sippy cup, Water doesn't stain. You don't have to be concerned about it. The child can pour it all over himself, and there's no problem. He pours it all over himself. You just say, that's all right, sweetheart. Let's try it again. And you put a little water in the cup, and uh, you, again, show him how to lift the cup to his lips, and bada-bing, bada-boom, uh, the child by 16 months is drinking water out of an open container, and then... When you're secure in the feeling that he's got it down and isn't going to, you know, spill all over the place uh, 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 under normal circumstances, you can begin introducing other liquids. Please make them healthy. And always remember that the healthiest liquid for your child to drink is H2O. And that brings me to strollers. Strollers. Strollers were rarely seen um, 
in America prior to uh, the 1960s. Strollers, to the shock and surprise of most modern parents, are a relatively recent invention, and um, they delay uh, the child's learning uh, how to conduct himself properly in public places. A child who is in a stroller being rolled around in this portable throne through public places does not have to learn how to conduct himself in public places, as did children like myself raised in the late 40s and early 1950s whose mothers expected them, once they learned to walk, to walk next to them in stores and other public places, generally speaking, and um, corrected the child's wanderings very early on, such that by age two, children in America, believe it or not, this is amazing, brace yourselves, buckle your seatbelts, were in fact well-behaved in public places. They were well-behaved in stores. They were well-behaved in restaurants. And, you know, we didn't go to restaurants that often, but when we went, we were well-behaved. And uh, well-behaved just about in any social situation our parents took us into. Not because there was anything remarkable about my generation. Uh, It was simply a matter of the fact that uh, my generation's parents uh, trained us properly during our early years. And folks, the earlier you train a child to behave properly in a public place, the... um, easier, less stressful your parenting is going to be. I was talking about this in a small group seminar in Charlotte, North Carolina last weekend, as a matter of fact, and somebody jokingly called out, uh, how about leashes, John? Why don't we just put them on leashes? (laughs) And he thought it was a joke. He was cracking himself up. And I, to his shock and surprise, said, I am fully in favor of leashes. They are used in Europe, and European children don't seem to be suffering from them. The leash allows the child a certain amount of freedom uh, while at the same time— and folks, these are not leashes that attach to collars around children's necks. Let's get that straight. Uh, These are leashes— that attach to harnesses that the children wear. The clip is attached to a ring that's generally speaking in the middle of the child's back. They're very comfortable. They don't hurt the child. Uh, There's no uh, danger of the child being harmed. Um, But these leashes allow children a certain amount of freedom in public situations while at the same time allowing parents a reasonable amount of control. Because of a leash, a child is learning to walk with you, is within your control, is uh, learning to behave himself in public places, and at the same time has a certain amount of freedom uh, within the context of he can Uh, exercise a reasonable amount of curiosity concerning the things that uh, he's seeing. I was at uh, Disney World, which I prefer to call Dizzy World, uh, two weeks ago with with two of my grandchildren, my daughter and my wife. 
And uh, the reason why uh, the Magic Kingdom is so completely congested with people has to do largely with the fact that people are pushing these strollers around. Um, Strollers containing not just one child, but two or three. I mean, you had to constantly, you know, dodge the stroller. And uh, people would come up uh, behind you and uh, knock the stroller into the back of your heel and things like that, tripping you up. I mean, it was really irritating and made me decide, hey, I'm going to go on a rant against strollers on an upcoming show. So this has been a rant against strollers from your host, John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So. We're on American Family Radio every Saturday, 5 p.m. Central Time. Join us next Saturday. Thank you for joining us this time.